When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Novel Dialogue, a podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies and produced in partnership with Public Books, an online magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship. I'm Sarah Wasserman, one of the hosts at Novel Dialogue. This season, which is directed by Chris Holmes and Emily Hyde, we're paying special attention to the weird in contemporary novels, strange things, happenings, and perspectives. But as always on this podcast, weird or not, we bring you dialogues between the most fascinating critics and novelists around to talk about how novels work. And I'm really excited about today's episode. Today, we have Laura McGrath with us to talk with three-time National Book Award finalist and New York Times bestselling author, Lauren Groff. Lauren is the author of The Monsters of Templeton, Arcadia, Fates and Furies, and Matrix, as well as the short story collections, Delicate Edible Birds and Florida. We're recording this episode just a few days before the release of her newest novel, The Vaster Wilds, which tells a harrowing and beautiful tale about a servant girl escaping from the Jamestown, Virginia settlement in 1609. Reading it solidified the opinion that I had personally after reading and teaching Matrix, that I don't think there's anyone today writing word for word better sentences about nature and solitude. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thanks so much for being here. Laura McGrath is a literary critic, writer, assistant professor of English at Temple University and a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellow. She is currently at work on a book called Middle Men, Literary Agents and the Making of Contemporary Literature, which is under contract with Princeton University Press. Her work on contemporary fiction and the publishing industry also appears in The Atlantic, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and Public Books. Laura, thanks so much for being here today. And since I'm really just the middleman here, I'm happy to turn things over to you now. I really think we need to coin the word middlewoman uh, <laughs> for these situations precisely. But thank you so much, Sarah. And Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I cannot say how much I have enjoyed your writing over the years and specifically how much I really enjoyed uh, rereading through your work this summer and, and reading The Vaster Wilds in preparation for this conversation. Thank you, Laura. And thank you, Sarah, for hosting the whole shebang. I really appreciate it. So I want to dive right in. Um, in the letter that was addressed to re readers in the ARC that I received of The Vaster Wilds, you called this book your most ambitious novel. Um, and this is a really big statement, I think, for a writer like you, who I think of as just massively ambitious always. <laughs> for a massively ambitious writer to write a really ambitious novel, is it's a big statement. Um, but The Vaster Wilds is also um, in one reading, not the only reading, but in one reading, uh, one of your quietest novels, right? A protagonist who is mostly solitary, um, a narrative that is driven by introspection, that's got very little present tense dialogue. Um, and so I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit then about what ambition means to you. I love this question because when it is applied to women in general, it is 
uh, pretty much negative usually when we when we see you know Becky Sharp in Vanity Fair is an ambitious um, but I think for me ambitious really means uh, going so far beyond the things that you think that you can do that you end up in the realm of um, possible failure. <laughs> so I think it's, you know, um, if a man's reached and exceed his grasp, what is the heaven for? Um, I, I think that you're sort of always uh, reaching for the, the heaven. One of the things that I have loved most about your writing and loved most rereading you this summer is how each of your books is really kind of a thorough just a wholesale departure from the last in many ways. Um, and yet there's such consistent kind of classic groff through lines, right? Faith and spirituality, nature. What's always persistent to me, like Sarah just said, is just at the level of the sentence, your work is just so like finely wrought um, that even though each each book immerses itself in this newly textured language. Um, it just feels very clear at all times that these sentences have just been um, masterfully crafted. I, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your process and, and how you go about immersing yourself in a new language or a new setting as you move from book to book, what that looks like for you uh, and, and how you think about readers in that process. Oh, absolutely. This is my favorite thing to talk about. I love process questions. So, um, a book begins almost always in some sort of research, even if it's a contemporary novel. I'm, I'm reading and reading and reading for the spark, the idea, the, um, the sympathetic voice that is somehow informing my own book. And often I don't know exactly what it is that I'm looking for until I actually find it. Um, but each book is its own separate thing. And I do want each subsequent book to in some ways destroy the book before. I mean, that's one of my desires when I write is to turn around and blow up what a reader might have thought a Lauren Groff book would be. Um, and so you know, with this book, I, I did a lot of primary um, research. I did a lot of archival research. I also did a lot of contemporary um, reading of academics who are responding to the primary um, sources. Uh, and I went back to the language of the Elizabethan era, right? So I went back to Shakespeare. I read all of Shakespeare all over again in order to get not only the the rhythm, but, you know, the iams and the, but the flow of ideas, the flow of metaphors, which is profoundly different from the way that we use metaphors today. I think metaphors change so abruptly over the course of 400, 500 years that we are now, um, I mean, I think metaphor is the most beautiful way to see how a human being can think and how thought sort of leaps poetically from one thing to the next. And uh, I think with technology, our our leaps are somewhat smaller. So um, to, to go back into the Elizabethan era and to see the larger metaphorical poetic leaps was just so gorgeous. And I wanted to bring that to the text itself. But every book has its own method. Um, and it takes me some years usually to define the method that I, I need to find to get the voice, the, the tone and the color. Has there been one that's been most challenging to you? Is that like, that might be like telling tales on your kids or something. But I don't know. Has there been a book that posed a very particular difficulty for you? Well, I mean, yeah. I, this 
Beth Wilds actually, it was probably my most difficult in that it took the longest to get from what I thought was a finished draft to what other people thought is a finished draft. Um, and uh, there were so many previous versions and so many like false ends that I, I went down, <laughs> false uh, roads that I went down. Um, I think Arcadia was one of the hardest books to write because uh, it was about existential dread and bringing children into the age of the Anthropocene and I was pregnant at the time that I was writing it and so that was just really I mean it was in some ways a vaccination against my own anxiety but it, in other ways it was um a catharsis of that same anxiety and and balancing those two things uh was difficult so all the books pose profound problems matrix was the easiest because I got it in a vision um, but the rest of them were really hard. I'd love to, that's, that's a, a question that I've had for you. I'd love to talk about the relationship between the Vaster Wilds and Matrix. And it's so interesting to hear you say that each novel should destroy the last, uh, because these two novels are so clearly in conversation with one another. Um, and I've been trying to wrap my mind around what the nature of this conversation is, right? Like, is it call and response between Matrix and Vaster Wilds? Is it kind of this frenzied uh, sort of conversation that you might have at a bar where everyone's just so eager to share their stories and, and to, you know, get to know each other? Or, or is it this sort of long lingering conversation that happens over years, I had never thought about one destroying the other, right? I never thought about this as like a a, a debate perhaps or or um, a refutation. Um, so I, I guess I, I understand as, and as you just said that the that matrix kind of came to you in this sort of vision um, while you were working on Vaster Wilds and uh, that you paused the one to work on the other. I'm really interested in Vaster Wilde's origin story, um, where where you started with it. So that's kind of part one of this question. But then I'm also really interested in how the novel changed as a result of pausing and working kind of on this whole cloth vision of Marie de France in, in Matrix. Well, just to clarify things, I didn't really pause Vaster. It was still living and I was still working on it. Um, I was actually working on Three different books and I, I think of them as a triptych. You are so right to say that they're in conversation because they are, they're intended to be a triptych as opposed to um, just individual autonomous books out in the world, which I want them to be also. I, you know, I don't want people to have to have read any one of the books. Um, but my, my overall vision, like the larger God's eye view, if I ever end up writing this gosh darn third book, is that uh, I wanted to see almost like a stone skipping across the surface of water. I wanted mm. to see about a thousand years of religion and women and the Anthropocene and the, the beginnings of the Anthropocene within religion and the way that we got to where we are now. Uh, so the first voice, of course, would be Marie's in, in Matrix in the 11th, 12th century. And then um, 1609 with my character in Vester Wilds in the third book, which I've written probably eight separate complete drafts of, and I can't find, I can't nail it yet. <laughs> it may never happen. It may just be an imaginary third one, but um, someday possibly. So all of these books uh, are talking under the surface, sort of like whale song, right? So it's, it's 
it's it wasn't meant to be a trilogy, obviously, because the characters are so different and the the subjects are so different, and even the style of the writing is different from one book to the next. But they're meant to thematically reverberate um, in a larger sense as a as a larger project. Uh, so what happened was uh, in 2012, I was in a doctor's office and I picked up a Smithsonian magazine. And in it, there was this article on Jamestown during the starving time, which was a horrific time when I think 80% of the, the colonists died of disease and famine and violence and um, being hung up by the thumbs uh, because they murdered their wives. I mean, really terrible things are happening. And in that article, there was new. There was a new revelation about how a young girl, a fourteen-year-old girl, her bones had shown evidence of cannibalism, and I was so blown away by that because it went against a lot of the foundational mythology of America that I had heard my entire life. Um, and then I remembered over time slowly. Uh, Mary Rawlinson and early American captivity narratives, particularly by women, uh, because they were used by primarily men um, as agents of propaganda for Western expansion. And I thought how interesting those are, because even though you know as a 21st century reader that these are elements of propaganda, they're also compelling in and of themselves. Once in a while, you hear the actual voice of the woman slip through time and sort of touch you really deeply. And so it's, uh, they're, they're really fraught and complicated texts. And I think that they are the start of the frontier narrative that we come to rely on as like universal American mythology. I mean, I think the cowboy narrative actually comes out of early American captivity narrative. All of this said, uh, I eventually then reread Robinson Crusoe, and it was with the rereading of Robinson Crusoe that I thought all of these things came together, and I wanted to write a female uh, Robinson Crusoe in anti-captivity narrative. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, I was reading um, with the with Mary Rowlandson kind of in the back of my mind as well. Um, and and with that in mind, I kept kind of expecting the generic trope of, of the moment of encounter, right? I kept expecting the moment in which she would be count, would be captured, or I kept expecting, you know, Robinson Crusoe meets Friday. Um, and of course, Native Americans are very active throughout this novel. They're very present. And, and the girl is very aware of their presence and, and comes to understand their presence differently over the course of the novel. But that was just one way in which you are engaging this genre and also just fully subverting it, um, really working with those expectations and 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 turning the screw in this way of, of thinking about um, how these narratives might work told from the perspective of a young girl. I wonder if you could talk about maybe some other ways that you're thinking about this work in conversation with some of those early American narratives. Um, thinking about it, as you've just said, in a more female, uh, from a more female perspective, thinking about kind of the, the difference in the ways in which um, Native Americans are being portrayed. What are some other conversations um, that you're having in, in this novel with early American frontier narratives? I mean, one of the primary ones, in addition to the ones I've already mentioned, is the relationship between human and nature, right? I mean, I think in general, um, those narratives see nature as enemy, just just as the the kidnappers were the enemies of the the women. Um, and I, you know, 
in this time and place that seems so sad and um and relentlessly wrong <laughs> so i wanted to change that i wanted to make nature a source of conflict but also a source of joy and beauty and wonder and delight and there's abundance there if only she weren't so ignorant right if only she knew just a little more about the mass underfoot or the groundnuts right or where to find more food she, she could survive very easily in the woods if she just knew just a little bit more so you know I wanted I wanted to change this idea of dominance over nature that that I think does animate and drive the western or the frontier narrative now uh of course um the western is really interesting the frontier narr narrative is really interesting the way that we've allowed it to sort of succumb to like a macho um anti-woman anti-native american anti-nature right like capitalist enterprise uh and all of those things just by the mere facts of putting a woman at the center of the book, a young girl at the center of the book, all of those things sort of fall to the wayside. Can I just jump in with a question that links some of the things that the, the two of you have been talking about? Um, and it's a question about, about gender. So it's following directly on what you were talking about, Lauren. But so I am always a bit skeptical when people describe literature as quiet. Um, because it seems like, except if they're talking about John Williams' novel Stoner, what they're really talking about is a novel by a woman <laughs> and about female characters, right? Um, but my experience of reading your work is that it is so devastating. I mean, in the best way possible, because it it's like there's a quiet surface tension, to use your metaphor of skipping the stone. And then underneath, there are powers and forces and all kinds of things roiling and part of what I think you do so well is we never quite know when they will erupt how they will erupt you know but they're always there and that for me you know was very true in um the Baster Wilds it's also true in short stories like Ghosts and Empties um but I wanted to ask if you feel like that is I guess how you experience your own writing or your own prose, what you're going for, but also how linked that is for you to the experience or to the attempt to describe the experience of being in a female body. Mm -hmm. um, that this question of, of where and when hostilities or violence erupt is linked to gender so, so intimately, especially in the vaster wilds. I, I, I love when people do describe at least the surface tension of my work as quiet, uh, because I do think that, that that's the kind of work that I love the most. I don't necessarily see my own work as quiet. And this is maybe the difference between a critic and the writer herself is that I find it full of fireworks everywhere and barely repressed rage. And, and I think that those arrests often in the strangeness of my syntax. Um, so I, I see tripwires everywhere. I see pitfalls everywhere in in the surface, in the in the um, the way that the sentences are made. Uh, but maybe I think that might be a, just a difference. But I do love this idea of 
living in the world in the female body, I think that there has to be something profound underneath that. Uh, I, you know, I think I think about all of the other female writers that I know with a surface smoothness and repressed vibrations underneath. And I maybe I'm speaking to them also. Right? Maybe I'm speaking back into literature in some ways. Is Virginia Woolf, who I think has the sort of prose that I'm I'm aiming for, um, and George Eliot, who has the kind of prose that I'm aiming for. She seems much more Pacific, but she's actually full of rage. To that point, I I I called this novel quiet or quieter in my first question in part because it is literally quieter right like in terms of the people speaking to each other um the the sort of conversation that we expect is um or that you've come to see in something like fates and furies where you have lotto kind of constantly monologuing um and and all of their you know hangers on you know constantly in conversation with one another um this novel is is uh is is mostly um even even the conversation that we have it is is through the memory of of the young girl at its center um so that said though it's only really quieter if we take this very strictly human view right and so this gets us back to the idea of the weird that this podcast has been engaging this season um I really love the idea of this book being called quiet I think it has something to do with the palette that we're working with Fates and Furies is operatic, right? It is multicolored. It's like a peacock, right? I mean, it's really wild. It's intentionally larger than life. This one is set in the woods, white, right? With black trees. I mean, there's red blood. And then there's very other, very little other color. And I think this, this is really very important. And I think that there's an equation of quietness and loudness with the the, the color aspect. I think it was John Ruskin who called um, color light suffering and joy. And that's what I'm trying to do in this book, right? And it, in all my books is sort of trying to, to find the, the color palette of the book to equate with the suffering and joy of what's happening within it. Um, so I actually really like this idea. I think it is kind of a quiet book in some ways until it blooms into rainbows at the end. Yeah. And and maybe it's it's that end that I'm I'm so interested in as we think kind of beyond the limits of human subjectivity, as we think kind of beyond the limits of human character or even human speech. Um, there's a moment at the end, if you don't mind, I'm gonna do this thing, which involves reading part of your book. Um uh I, I will do my best to not spoil anything for for readers, but um in which which this young girl is reflecting on what she sees around her, um, as she does throughout the novel, but in a new and different way now. Um and and you write that uh the earth itself uncovered its shining face and to her now revealed itself in a litany of wonder. And this litany continues as she looks and sees all of these things around her and begins to understand them differently. And one of my favorite passages in the entire book uh, is a few paragraphs down. And the stones with their lives so slow that to all important moving creatures of animated life, they did appear unmoving. But even the stones she understood now did meet and mate, did erupt and splinter, did rub to powder stone upon stone and stone upon water and stone upon air, so that in the long scale of their lives, the stones saw within themselves incredible vitality. 
And this seems in so many ways to be kind of the the project of this book um, and, and the project, I think, of your own investigation of, of thinking differently about nature, thinking about what went wrong in Genesis with our misreading of the idea of dominion. Um, and so if this book is quiet uh, in some ways, even though I we love the idea and I'm, I'm totally game with calling it a quiet book, but it's also also only quiet if we don't see what the stones are doing right? If we can't embrace the sort of cosmic timescale. The literary critic Kate Marshall, um, kind of in the tradition of a writer like Marilyn Robinson, calls this a cosmic realism, or she might call this a sort of cosmic realism. Um, and, and that was somehow, or some part of what I understood this book to be engaging in the way that you, at different points throughout the novel, are really um, interested in exploring a non-human subjectivity. Right. Moments when the girl imagines how the duck will feel when it wakes up and discovers that its eggs are gone or how the bear feels about, you know, feeding its little cub this sickly thing. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, I mean, here's my reading of it. But like, what are you invested in in these moments of non-human subjectivity? What are you trying to get us to? How is this kind of revising the the domination narrative of Genesis that you are um, trying to rewrite? No, that is exactly what I was attempting to do. I do think um, I was I was maybe not subtly, but I was trying to to seep the the centrality of the human out of the narrative of the world, right? Um, because I don't know if you have friends who are geologists, but I do, and it's so lovely to be in nature with them, right? Because they will talk about time as though. Uh, they're sitting uh, on Mount Olympus with the gods, right? Time is not a human scale thing. We are just mere ants, right? Time is this glorious, great, beautiful um, tapestry in which we are just a single thread. And to, to see this limestone bluff and to be able to see sort of the, the layers and the, the foldings and, and, understand time in a different way is really gorgeous. We are so trained to see narrative as a human thing, right? Uh, or time as something spinning around the human. Um, and I, I do think that opening up the perception of these great existential mysteries is something beyond the small human will be the thing that allows us, if we can, in time, uh, save life on this planet, save human life on this planet. One of the other beautiful things uh, that I learned is that there's this uh, Japanese drilling company or endeavor that is drilling deep into the earth. And at every level that they drill, there's life. They have found life, which I find so meaningful and powerful and moving. And I think about this and it seems to me if that is the case, then maybe humans removing ourselves from the earth is not as devastating and awful as we all believe it maybe. Which is nihilistic maybe, but it's also really embracing of other forms of life. There was a moment um, in the last 
quarter of the novel, I guess, where I, I noted this phrase, um, the girl is hiding behind a waterfall and uh, she is trying to suss out what's around her. And again, this is a very terrible description so that I do not spoil for anyone what's happening toward the end of the novel. Um, but you use the phrase that she she sends out her attention. Um, and, and that jumped out to me as a really interesting way of describing the sort of um, mental processes that she undergoes in this book. But it also, um, the more I, I thought on that phrase, the more it also seemed a way of describing what you are really interested in as a writer in really each of your novels. Um, you know, sending out your attention to understand perhaps a sea monster in a lake, in Glimmerglass Lake, in, in the town of Templeton, or seeing the world through the perspective of a five-year-old boy, um, paying attention to a wife, for instance, um, or or um, in, in Matrix, I was struck by um, Marie's downfall in many ways uh, comes from her inability to pay attention to much beyond her own capacity for creation, right? That she doesn't see the field mice that the labyrinth disrupted. Um, that she doesn't see the the animals that she displaced in creating this magnificent abbey. Um, and so it seems like that is not only kind of your, as you're talking now, that seems like it's not only your um, focus as a writer, but also your process in many ways. That sending out your attention seems to be how you manage to create these just dramatically immersive worlds in your novels. Oh, attention is love, right? I actually think that the the more attention you pay to something, the more you just fall in love with it, no matter what it is. You could, you could, I do this with my grad students once in a while when I teach, but you could look at a pen for uh, 15 to 20 minutes. And by the time you're done with the full immersion, attentive, looking at a pen, you just love that object so deeply. Right? I actually think that, that it's very, very similar. And not, and hating is not, um, I think hating is the withdrawal of attention, right? The, the, the very profound um, desire to, to remove love, right? It's the absence, it's the black hole of, of attention. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's all that I'm trying to do when I write. I'm trying to find those pulses of, of, love and joy and energy and trying to stay there and as even if it's a it's a difficult thing to do um mm -hmm. i know that sounds so wooey but <laughs> it is it is my philosophy on writing um if you write out of hatred you're just not paying attention i don't know i don't think it's wooey i love it so much <laughs> um or maybe it is wooey and also i love it so it much. is wooey <laughs> <for sure. laughs> Um, so as I look at, at your body of work, I, I feel like it could be divided in two groups, right? So on the one hand, there's Monsters of Templeton, Arcadia, and Fates and Furies that are all, um, relatively speaking, contemporary, or at least in some like recognizable U.S. culture, right? Even if it's the 60s or the 80s in Arcadia, it's, it's very recognizable to your audience as something familiar. Um, and then, and then Matrix and the Vaster Wilds, um, and I think it was 2012, you said you began Vaster Wilds, um, 2021 that Matrix was published. So I'm kind of backdating this a little bit. You're working on these novels through uh, the Trump administration in this moment in which uh, <laughs> we seem to refuse just 
a vast swath of the U.S. population just refuses to think historically about anything. This is also the moment in which you are turning to historical fiction in your work, right? Moving us all the way back to the 12th century and then jumping ahead a little bit to 1609. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about what historical fiction is doing for you. Like why this turn to historical fiction? Why is this meaningful now for you, for readers? Um, what What's motivating that, that shift? That shift that I see, you might not see that as a shift in your writing, but uh, the shift that I see in your writing. About 10 years ago, I sat in some graduate classroom and I pronounced that I would never write historical fiction again. <laughs> and then I wrote these two books. Uh, I think, you know, when I was in grad school in the early 2000s, it, historical fiction was seen as a lesser form of writing, partially because that is the um, the gift of Henry James, who absolutely hated it and just sort of spread his hatred all over the rest of us. Uh, but it's also, it was seen as a conservative form, uh, looking backwards without engaging with the present moment. And I think a lot of people's um, idea of what art is, is that it always engages with the present. And I don't disagree. I actually do think that that's what art does um, and subverts a lot of the, the, the narratives that we fall into just in a knee-jerk way. Um, but I started to see that historical fiction could be just a really profound school that um, for thinking, for thinking and pushing against the contemporary age. Um, because you can put into historical fiction things that um, would be obscured by the things of the modern world, right? I could write a story, and I'm trying to write a story about climate change, God, women, right? All of those things now, but I also have to have computers in it, right? I have to have cell phones in it. I have to have the detritus of the actual world, which in some ways throws up these greens between what I really want to talk about and what I have to talk about in order to ground the reader in the world at large. But historical fiction is one of these beautiful, beautiful things that um, can slide in sideways, right? A lot of the stuff that you don't think that you might be interested in. Um, I, I really, I feel like it is, urgency of uh, contemporary writers of literature to, to address the climate crisis. I mean, if we don't do that, we're standing on the, the edge of a cliff, like pretending that the cliff doesn't exist at all. And that seems like the most unrealistic thing. But how do you do that without automatically turning off a reader who's already subject to their own anxieties about the climate crisis, right? I think that's what the problem with a lot of nonfiction books about it. People choose not to pick them up because they don't want to feel worse right, about, about what is happening in the world. But if you say, oh, you know, here's a book about nuns in the 12th century, you can still talk about these things. Wherever there's a human, there is a change in the physical world, in the natural world, right? You make a fire in the woods, that fire is changing the woods. Uh, so the Anthropocene starts with a human. And so you can talk about these things um, slyly. I 
wanted to ask too, kind of relatedly, as we're thinking about the Anthropocene, about the role of religion and spirituality in the climate crisis, but then in kind of more broadly, uh, the way that humans and nature interact. And, and about your interest in, in faith and spirituality and religion broadly in your writing. The last two books are really committed to kind of cleaving apart the two, right? That faith or that spirituality and religion are not the same thing. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where this particular interest of yours comes from and maybe what sort of tradition you see yourself writing in or with. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I don't see myself writing within a tradition. I think, um, I don't know. You know, I'm just writing out of personal desire. Uh, and it, I do, I love a lot of writers who came out of a, maybe a religious tradition. I think I think of Tolstoy and Marilyn Robinson as people who are really deeply invested in the spiritual. And I really want to remember that God is the ineffable mystery and God is not um, the, the attempt to define the ineffable mystery, which is what religion is. Religion is just, uh, trying to put eternity in words small enough that the human intellect can encompass them. And I think that that is against the profound beauty and vastness of whatever we want to call God. I actually think it's anti-God, um, which may be more radical than we want to get into in this um, podcast. I was raised as a Presbyterian. And it felt like such a constrained religion to me. It felt um, it felt limited to the imagination of the people preaching at me, as opposed to an expansion of soul, which I later found in literature. And then when I had my own children, I started wondering. Literature just wasn't enough. It didn't. It didn't match. Um, the, the hugeness of life, right? The, the creation of, of life and the protection of this lives that I now had in my hands. And I started thinking about larger ideas of uh, spirituality without, I, I'm not religious in any mode other than um, maybe whatever comes at the end of the Bastard Wild is really close to what I believe uh, of the world and of the great eternal gorgeous mysteries that we all should be engaged with on a daily basis without limiting it to religion. Yeah, I had a similar trajectory to you, although perhaps a little bit reversed in terms of like denominational forms. Mm. So I was raised kind of non-denominational evangelical. Mm. Um, and again, I found that to be so small and so constricting. Mm. Um, and the the ritual of liturgy in the Episcopal tradition was something that kind of unleashed a larger tradition. Mm. Um, now I find myself uh, outside of that um, and, mm. and trying to figure out what that means for my daughter in, in, in a way that is very similar to what you described and we don't much need to get into. Um, but I was really struck through reading Matrix and, and then thinking about the rest of your novels through the lens of Matrix uh, about the role that ritual plays in your writing, um, both for your for your stories, for your characters themselves, but then also for you as a writer. As I understand, you're a writer who's very um, committed to sort of ritualistic practices. Your your daily practice seems to be very um, almost liturgical in some way. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between um, 
ritual and also something that is, um, if you could talk about the, I mean, maybe it's ritual and ambition, right? Maybe it's ritual and, and understanding sort of some space of the eternal, but, um, I, yeah, I was wondering if you could chat a little bit about, about ritual. I think ritual is so beautiful because it has dual and almost contradictory purposes, right? So it can, it limits possibility by um, making the, the body go through a series of daily exercises that don't change, right? So that, um, I'm not ever tempted to lie in bed because I just don't, right? That's just not in my ritual. Yeah, you know, I get up, get coffee, go to work, um, meditate. And then, all, you know, everything happens in a in order. And so it takes away options in a really beautiful formal way, almost like formal poetry. Sometimes when you do formal poetry, it unleashes uh, the imagination to go in directions you never would have thought um, it could possibly go. So it's both a restriction and an expansion in a very, very profound way. I have to say it comes out of my devotion to ritual comes out of two places. One is I was in, I do athletic things every day, but I'm no longer an athlete, but I was raised an athlete, right? And that is how you just get better. You just do the same things over and over again to the point of failure. And then maybe your point of failure grows a little bit the next day. Um, so that it became really important to me to, to sort of replicate that in my working life. But it's also because I do have OCD. And if I didn't have these rituals, um, I wouldn't write anything, right? So it's a part of my just brain chemistry that I have to do the same thing every single day. And that allows me the latitude to, to wander freely and to fail. It's, uh, yeah, paradoxical, but I really, I love my rituals. I get so sad. I'm about to go on tour and I'm about to not be around my rituals and it's going to be very hard. <laughs> no, I, I love thinking about that in light of formal poetry. I was thinking about this um, rereading Matrix about Marie's um, initial lack of belief in many ways, right? She She's She's Catholic nominally, um, but kind of comes to the Abbey without a particularly committed um, belief. And yet through ritual um, finds not constraint that she initially thought she'd find, but that unleashes these sort of, you know, revel revelations, these these beautiful visions. Um, and uh, that strikes me as, as one way of kind of thinking about the interplay between these two things, that like the daily practice of... Um, sitting in the chair, drinking the coffee, writing the lines. Uh, also, the, the, the mundane qualities of that to also kind of unleash this sort of um, allow access to an imaginative space that might not otherwise be available without those sorts of constraints. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. I love the way that you write women. I just, I'm so, I'm so drawn by these just complex characters that you've written. Um, and it seems to me, as I read your writing, it seems to me that you love them in really meaningful ways. <laughs> and that is so um, just, uh, it's just so wonderful to read, to read these people who are complex and contradictory and their lives cannot be resolved and they shouldn't have to be. Um, and and it's just, it's so wonderful to read. Laura, thank you. I do love them. I love all my characters, <laughs> even the bad ones. I love them all. So every season we close with a signature question. 
which we ask to all of our guests. And this season, Lauren, is interesting because you in some ways have already answered our signature question, which is what is your what has been your weirdest source of writing inspiration? You already told us about a Smithsonian magazine and a doctor's office and a vision. Um, but that's the question and you can answer it ho however you like. What has been your weirdest source of writing inspiration? When my uh, older son was about your son's age, Laura, about uh, two or three, I was working on this short story and I couldn't get it. I couldn't get the, the, the form of it, right? Because until you have the form, you really don't have a story, even if you have the voice. Uh, so I was walking behind him in a park, trying to see the world through his little tiny eyes where, you know, the, the grass was like a savanna, like he was like pushing through it and the ducks are his size and they're enormous and scary dinosaurs coming at him. And I looked up in his eyes and I saw a double seesaw going like this, um, back and forth. And I found the structure of the story in this vision at a playground through my three-year-old size. And that was very strange to, to be struck suddenly with the formal architecture of a short story in the, in the park. That's amazing. It's a very beautiful, I love that. it's a beautiful weird, um, which <laughs> is, is quite fitting uh, from a person writing such beautiful prose. So thank you so much, Lauren, for joining us today. Thank you, Laura, for hosting this conversation. Um, I just want to remind our listeners that you can buy Lauren Groff's books, including The Vaster Wild in bookstores, that's brick and mortar bookstores and online. And we'll have some links as always on the episode's webpage. And as always, we are also grateful to the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship, to Public Books for its partnership, and to Duke University for its continued support. Hannah Jorgensen is our production intern, Rebecca Otto is our social media manager, and Connor Hibbard is our sound engineer. Check out past episodes featuring Ocean Vuong, Jeff Vandermeer, Ruth Ozeki, and many more. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us at Novel Dialogue, thanks so much for tuning in. Keep listening and keep reading. Keep reading.